How do you design care for patients with long COVID? Will the pandemic lead to a redesign of medical education? Can design principles create safer standards in healthcare? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab, a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Lakshmi Santosh, who specializes in adult pulmonary and critical care medicine. She treats patients in the neural ICU on the internal medicine teaching wards. She is the founder and medical director of the multidisciplinary long COVID post-ICU optimal clinic at UCSF Health. There, she also serves as the assistant program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship and also serves as the assistant site director for the internal medicine residency. In addition to her MD, Lakshmi obtained her master's in health professions education from UC Berkeley. Thank you for listening to Design Lab each week. I love it when listeners give us their feedback. And I want to remind listeners that there are three ways to support the show. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars, leave us a review. Number two, sign up for the newsletter. You can find the link in the podcast show notes and tell someone about the podcast. Share it on Twitter and LinkedIn. Now, here's my conversation with Lakshmi Santosh. Lakshmi, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited that you're on the show. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. I've really been looking forward to talking with you. You are a pulmonologist, critical care physician. And in addition to that sort of work of taking care of patients in the ICU, you also started a long COVID clinic, one of the first in San Francisco. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So basically in March of 2020, when the pandemic hit New York initially in a difficult, serious way, many of us on the West Coast were just awaiting that wave with trepidation, and we're just planning ahead. And as we read these reports coming out of New York, Italy, and China of patients who were, of course, critically ill, who needed help acutely, we also started seeing these reports emerging of people who had persistent lingering symptoms for weeks, sometimes months, and now we know even up to years. Mm. And so my clinical division chief had asked at the time, does anybody want to sort of help out with this patient population? And Because I actually practice in the ICU as well as on the hospital medicine wards and an outpatient clinic, I do all three care contexts. I immediately said, I want help. Let me help with trying to think about how could we think about a care system that would be helpful Mm. to serve this patient population who's suffering, again, not just acutely, but also with these long-term symptoms. And how might we improve the experience with patients who are experiencing symptoms in multiple organ systems, yet kind of a streamlined care experience. That's fascinating because often healthcare, we're so responsive and we don't think about designing for the future, but you had this insight of like, hey, there's some reports going on that there's like these long-term complications of COVID and why don't we start this clinic? Did you get some sort of pushback for doing that so preemptively where you're like, hey, this is too early, we're not seeing this yet? I would say that I would credit our clinical chief, Dr. Lloyd Leard, for having her pulse on the situation to say, hey, we don't currently have a post-intensive care unit clinic, a post-ICU clinic, mm-hmm. like some institutions do. But you know, this is an opportunity to think about how could we build something on that model. And so early on through my specialty society, the American Thoracic Society, I started texting and Zooming and calling 
colleagues and friends around the country to say, what are you seeing? Do you have a post-ICU clinic? How might we kind of take lessons learned from that structure to apply it to COVID and long COVID? Again, at that point, what didn't even have a name. And so a lot of institutions were pivoting their post-ICU clinics to post-COVID clinics. And for institutions like ours that had me there, we said, we just have to start somewhere. Mm. Now, let's talk a little bit about post-COVID, especially for those listening who who don't know what that is, because it's it's a little bit unclear, even I think to physicians, but like how common is it? How would you describe this diagnosis? Because it's like a new diagnosis that doctors design, right? We had to like figure out, we have to give him a name. We have to figure out what constitutes long COVID. Yeah. I think one interesting thing about this illness is that really it is currently a collection of symptoms that's quite heterogeneous. There's a huge diversity of patient experience. And the term long COVID is actually a patient-generated term. Mm. And Elisa Perego is a scientist who first coined the term on social media, actually, saying some people COVID. Yep. I didn't know that. So she is a wonderful researcher and advocate. And she said, some people, there's a lot of attention on acute COVID. I have long COVID. And she wrote about it and publicized this term. And that term really resonated with the patient community. Mm. And I think to me, it's just one of these many instances that shows where some cases, the patient community is actually leading up to the medical community. And patients were saying, this is a serious collection of symptoms that doesn't have a name yet. And we are self-designating it as long COVID. And then eventually the WHO and NIH termed it PASC, you know, post-acute sequelae of coronavirus. Uh But the term long COVID has kind of stuck. And so many places will call it long COVID slash PASC, or I prefer to use whatever term the patient prefers to use too. And it's just another experience of, of how diagnosis is really it used to be thought of as a black and white process where yeah. the doctor will see you now and give you a diagnosis. Yeah. But now we know in some cases, it's more of a collaborative co-creation process, interestingly, where the patient has a lot of clues to their own history. And then the other thing that's, of course, a danger in that is that both doctors, patients, and family members can also sometimes erroneously apply that label or that diagnosis to right. a collection of conditions that may not actually be long COVID or post-acute sequelae of coronavirus. So we always have to look critically to make sure, you know, I had a colleague recently asked me about a patient who had new multiple brain cysts that were discovered. And it was after a recent COVID infection. And they Mm. were asking me, do I think this is long COVID? And here in California in the Central Valley, we have a lot of fungus coccidiomycosis. Mm. And I said, you know, it's kind of sounds worrisome for coxie. Yeah. But brain cysts have a large differential. And I would definitely not assume this is long COVID or coxie. And you should see a neurology specialist to really think deliberately and thoughtfully about that long differential. And that's just one of dozens to hundreds of examples that we have where perhaps that label mm. should be thoughtfully applied. Yeah. And certainly sometimes it can be a working diagnosis, as we say in the medical education world. What is yeah. your working diagnosis? And you have to really think thoughtfully and keep your mind broad. Yeah. Are there certain design principles that you use in treating patients with long COVID or you know, running this clinic? It's a great question. So I think one of the things that is 
interesting that we say a lot is that because there is no one single phenotype, there is no one single cure. Mm. And because of that, we're definitely in a symptom-driven, symptom-management approach. So I can't necessarily treat your long COVID per se, but if headaches are the worst symptom you're experiencing, we have a lot of treatments for headaches Mm. or shortness of breath. We have treatments for shortness of breath and we have diagnostics that we should do. And so really one of the principles that comes first is empathy, right? Always start with empathy. That comes out loud and clear when you're treating patients with long COVID because a lot of times they're seeing you for a second opinion, a third opinion. Mm. They've experienced medical gaslighting. They've experienced a lot of mistrust of the healthcare system with people telling them, this is anxiety, this is all in your head. What is medical gaslighting for those who don't know? Yeah, that's another term generated or coined by the patient community, which is basically patients feeling that their experiences can be invalidated or dismissed, especially sometimes it can be particularly when symptoms are thought to not have a biological basis. The earliest examples of that is the example of hysteria, right? So women were, were told, you know, centuries ago that their symptoms were due to a wandering hysterical uterus and that legacy of mistrust can exist. And a lot of patients come having experienced a lot of skepticism about symptoms from the medical community. So leading with empathy is really key to say, I'm here to listen. I'm here to validate your experience. I've seen hundreds of people like you and we're here to help you. Mm. I think the second thing is, you know, another design principle is of course, defining the problem. So I think that's, again, getting people to kind of narrow down and say what to basically help prioritize what symptoms are most affecting their quality of life and most bothersome so we can target those symptoms with directed therapy while research is underway to look at all the different underlying biological mechanisms so that Mm. ultimately, hopefully, we might have biologically directed therapies. But as of now, it's a symptom-directed therapy world. Yeah. kind of starting with empathy, then defining the problem and a lot of collaboration of some people might find this helpful while others find this helpful. Mm. A lot of shared decision-making. These are all important principles that we use every day in our clinic. And I love your interview in in the New York Times with Ezra Klein, where you said one thing you do in the clinic is you listen deeply. And I love that because that is something that is diminishing and missing in a lot of our interactions with patients. There's not time to do that. You know, the system's so poorly designed that we can't listen deeply, but that is so important. You're exactly right. I think it's the key to have that time for the thorough history, the listening, the thorough physical exam, thinking thoughtfully about what tests are helpful, what tests are not so helpful, having a discussion about it, having a discussion about the latest research and possible research to participate in. We are lucky in our clinic system that we have ample time for those initial visits, which I'm thankful for, because it does take that much time and more. So we're lucky that we have an hour. Yeah. You knew that you had to listen deeply. So you designed your clinic around making these hour time slots, which is very unusual in, in the practice of medicine. It's very unusual. And again, we're lucky that even before the pandemic, our new patient slots are typically an hour for pulmonary at our center, which is amazing. How do you do that? I know that is a huge privilege that we have to have that time. 
And again, with the complexity of patients that we see, even pre-pandemic, you take that whole hour, you really do. And you need that hour. And again, you're spending usually hours afterwards before preparing for the visit, reading hundreds of pages of medical records to digest them. Because many times people are coming for a second, third, fourth opinion, and they have a lot of records to digest. So we use that time and more, and it's still not enough, right? But I think in a healthcare system nationally where visits are 15 to 20 minutes at best, people, of course, don't have time to listen deeply or to do that thorough history or to think about disease mimics, you know, what else could be going on or to think about a broad differential or to connect people to research. You're just putting out fires in a 15 to 20 minute visit. And so we have the luxury of time and we spend that time with the patients who appreciate it. Yeah. We talked about this in an earlier podcast with Jay Baruch, but around one of the best forms of technology that we have in medicine is actually an old school technology of of being able to listen to, to yes. our patients. That's exactly right. I mean, some places spend a lot of energy and time on invasive diagnostic testing. And sometimes you need that, but not always. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of things you can do before you jump to reflex testing. And yeah. that's part of the UCSF ethos is they call it, you know, choosing wisely, the choosing wisely ethos, of course, where you think about what is high value there and not just ordering a bunch of tests yeah. indiscriminately. So we try to think about that really thoughtfully. And I, we have a lot of team members who just think in that same approach of why am I ordering this test? What is, mm-hmm. will it change my management? What is the use of this test? Yeah. And especially with long COVID, because there is no, one blood test there's one radiology imaging that can give us a diagnosis of that in your kind of opinion or your experience how prevalent is long covid in patients who have had covid right so this is a, again the a challenging question and i would say that this the cdc estimates that have come out of saying approximately one in five or one in six will have some persistent symptoms after infection that last weeks to months. Rings true in our experience mm. when we follow people out either after hospitalization or after initial infection. Of course, that varies. There's a whole spectrum of severity. And so that will vary from people with slightly worsened asthma or COPD than they used to have or a new diagnosis of mild asthma to everything from somebody being completely bedbound with the severe chronic fatigue syndrome phenotype mm-hmm. and everything in between. So there's a huge spectrum between now you might be using your inhaler twice a day instead of only with a run to being completely disabled, having a huge life-altering illness with profound impacts on your quality of life and being unable to work. And so we see the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. We have patients who see us once and then we provide them with resources and then they're recovering and they're off on their way. And then we have patients who are two years in who are still severely ill. Mm. I want to open up another tab and talk about a research study that you did where you co-created a ICU transfer tool and using human-centered design. I was curious to know how you got into human-centered design as a critical care physician And then tell us about why you created this tool. This is a great question. So one of the things that always bugged me a little bit about the quality improvement 
space and literature, you know, there are some parts of it that always resonated with me. Plan, do you study, act of a PDSA cycle. That definitely resonated with me that you need your needs assessment. You need to do something, study it, and iteratively refine it. But then when it came to practical things that were frustrating in the EHR or processes in healthcare that were frustrating with in-person communication or written communication, the PDSA tool felt a little bit one-dimensional for what's mm. a complicated kind of three-dimensional complex problem. Yeah. And transferring patients across any care context, and I'm interested in a lot of different care contexts, this tool that you mentioned is really from ICU to ward. But even before that, you know, we had done some work locally on how to improve communication between inpatient and outpatient clinicians, yeah. things like that. And so there's a lot of different care contexts where there are communication breakdowns on the regular yeah, in the healthcare system. All the time. Yes. And especially with these transitions of care, what we call them, because they're a dangerous time for patients, you know, whether exactly they're going right. from your emergency department to an inpatient floor, getting discharged from the ICU to the ward, getting discharged to go home. These are where mess ups happen and outcomes can get bad. That's exactly right. They're a really vulnerable time in patients' care trajectory, whether they're going home, coming out of the OR, coming upstairs from the ED, yeah. or going out to the IC to the ward. And it's a high-risk time, not just because they're moving from one care context to another, but also because their teams are usually completely different. So they're changing physicians, they're changing nurses, they're changing location yeah. in the hospital. And often the communication... Ideally, your best practices suggest that it should be written, verbal, and face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Sometimes you get none of those. It's rare and, that you get multiple layers of safety. Yeah. And I don't remember ever learning anything in medical school or residency training to prepare me for that. <laughs> you know, like there's not like these, we haven't been given the tools to tackle these very real problems that we face every day in the, in the clinic or hospital. That's exactly right. I think one place that's had increasing education since the work hours reform, you know, that just started when I was just entering residency and we were moving away from the dreaded 30-hour call to more day-night shifts. So then that spawned a whole a whole sphere of teaching and education and practice change around day-to-night transitions of care. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Amy Starmer's work on the iPass tool so that's your patient identifier, you know, your patient severity of illness, your to-dos, your action items, situational awareness that we all know well. That really is a validated tool that was studied from that day-to-night transition. And that tool, too, is a little bit overly simplistic or for the complex ICU patient who's mm -hmm. going out to a brand new healthcare team. And so we thought, how might we, right, engage the users, residents and faculty and nurses, in thinking about a better way to transmit that information mm. when patients are changing care context, because it's a huge pain point where, like you said, it's a high risk time for patients. They're having a big reduction in their monitoring. Yeah. They're having new team members and there might be also diagnostic uncertainty. So it's diagnostic safety issues yeah. as well. Can you walk us through what typically happens and then talk about what your tool does to address some of the pain points in that journey? So what typically happens is there is no typical. So some of our early work shows that 
this process, even though it happens at every hospital around the country that has an ICU or a ward, is vastly different across centers. So mm-hmm. one of our earlier papers showed that at three big academic medical centers in three different parts of the country, we did process maps where you actually physically mapped out every step in that process that I mentioned. Nurse to nurse handoff, physician to physician handoff, patient physically moving. And we mapped out what those processes looked like in three different centers. And they were vastly different. Uh The only common factor was the nurse to nurse handoff, which is a key. That should happen. That's mandatory. That's a patient safety check. Uh And again, I think this is an area where the nursing profession has actually led up to the physician profession because the nurses are much more streamlined at doing this very routinely end of shift transfer of service. They do this all the time very well in a very structured way. And physicians are behind in uptake of this. And so our earlier work showed that there was huge differences in heterogeneity and how this is done. Mm. So what we did was, again, starting with empathy, right? Starting with empathy interviews is first looking at residents at multiple centers across the country to ask them, what are their current issues with the current structure? What are common pain points? And they told us some things that surprised us. We thought they were going to talk about ICU readmissions a lot or patient safety events. And they did talk about all those. They talked a lot more about common places of errors, like medications not being updated, high-risk medications not being called out, not knowing what the diagnosis was, diagnostic uncertainty, Mm. and also things like this concept of rework, this concept that people need to when a patient is transferred, need to essentially start from scratch, redo everything, do a deep dive into the chart and waste time getting bogged down in the details. Oh my gosh. I'm having flashbacks to when I was doing hospital awards. I remember that. It's a universal experience that people's hearts sink a little bit when you get that ICU transfer, ICU call out, because you know that even if the person is quote stable, it's a lot of rework that needs to be done. Yeah, so again, and some of that start... rework can happen at one o'clock in the morning exactly. when you're tired and busy. That's exactly right. And so thinking about how do we improve that experience for the users? What do the users want to see? What is helpful? Because again, a, a standard discharge summary, a standard progress note may not be helpful for conveying just the high yield stuff that's going to prevent the rework. Yeah. And I'm curious to know how you got into design and human-centered design and thought about incorporating that into developing some of these tools? I think that it's, you know, we're we're neighbors, of course, to Stanford here in Silicon Valley. And I think that it is now bubbling up more and more into medical education and quality improvement circles. I think, mm-hmm. again, quality improvement had become somewhat stale with some of these complex topics. And so getting teaching from people on design methodologies who are patient safety quality improvement experts and hearing how they did it has been really helpful. And then seeing how applicable it is, not just in patient safety and transitions of care, but even in medical education projects that I'm involved in, using the human-centered design approach has been really, really helpful. Yeah. And let's shift gears and talk about redesigning medical education because what we've learned during this pandemic is that not only are we thinking about how we're redesigning care for patients, but can we redesign medical education? And and the last major shift in medical education happened to be around the last 
global pandemic around 1910. So that's exactly right. Yeah. So do you think there's going to be a shift in how we train future doctors that's influenced by our current pandemic? I certainly hope so. You're exactly right that with the influenza pandemic, you know, that led to a way of shifting of thinking about what doctors need to be trained in. And if we keep approaching our medical education in the exact same way, we're doing our future doctors and ourselves as as educators, ourselves as patients and family members a disservice if we keep the same exact way we've been doing things for the last 70 years. And medical education has had some innovations, but largely the way that I was trained in medical school is similar to the way that somebody else 10 years ago was trained, similar way to someone else 10 years before that was trained. And there are some minor innovations, but not big, large-scale innovation. I think the pandemic highlighted, as we wrote in a recent perspective piece, the need for a lot of education about things that have come up a lot. So biochemistry formula, very important. We still use it. Things that would have been much more important. How about reading of the statistical literature and interpreting evidence-based medicine when doctors are in the front line of combating medical misinformation? Yeah. Boy, a bunch of people wish they had better statistics training and better training in interpreting the medical literature when you see misinformation be truly weaponized in this pandemic. And then increased attention to how the social determinants of health and health equity and structural racism are hugely impacting patient outcomes, of course, well before this pandemic, but certainly significantly exacerbated by the pandemic. And so when I see these disturbing voices, such as you know, a Wall Street Journal editorial saying that should be deleted from the curriculum or that these are, quote, woke doctors, that's completely missing the point. In fact, it's the opposite. If this pandemic has taught us anything, we've seen firsthand how these racial inequities have been so exacerbated by the pandemic. So now more than ever, our future doctors need to be educated in structural racism, inequities in health, health disparities, and what can we do to combat those? Yeah. And I love that, you know, the AAMC, which is the major governing body for medical education in in the U.S., has included a curriculum change around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's why I was so shocked by this Wall Street Journal editorial entitled Medical Education Goes Woke and criticizing that. I honestly couldn't believe that that happened. And what I've learned during this pandemic is, yeah, not only do we have this viral pandemic, we have this racial pandemic going on and how ill-equipped our current healthcare system is in handling both of those pandemics. And I don't know, why do you think that is? There seems like this huge divide in opinion of how we should train future doctors. Yeah, this is I think it's one of these disturbing trends that we see of, it's not just polarization, right? But I think it's the, not you know, not to get too sidetracked, but it's also the monetization of the polarization, right? Mm. So the reason that editorial gets published is because it's getting clicks, it's going yeah. viral, it's starting a conversation. When you talk to educators on the ground, people who are treating patients with COVID and see with your own eyes the stark inequities and the stark racial disparities that, again, have been exacerbated by the pandemic, 
most treating clinicians on the ground, most AMA, which is a conservative group, would say this is an extremely important topic. Yeah. And I just worry that this anti-healthcare work, you know, we're, this isn't the climate of anti-healthcare worker harassment, yeah. medical misinformation, science denialism, anti-vaccine ideologies. They're all in the same family of viewpoints. And again, not to get too sidetracked, but there, there are stakeholders who are monetizing and capitalizing on the American public being so divided about these core yeah. scientific facts that we should be rallying to unite about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't think I've know of another physician personally who would agree with that editorial. <laughs> like that seems just so out of place with a consensus among educators of, of medical students. And you know, just going back to redesigning medical education, you know, one trend that we've been seeing even before the pandemic is, you know, asynchronous learning, self-directed learning from in medical education and the pandemic kind of maybe accelerated that, like thinking like five, 10 years in the future, what would a redesigned medical education system look like to you if you had the power to redesign it? It's a great question. I was just joking with a colleague the other day, you know, when I was a medical student, my husband, my then boyfriend, and I were in a long distance relationship. So I was just joking with a colleague that I was doing Zoom school before it was cool. <laughs> I was taking some classes nominally from New York, which is not where I went to medical school. Uh -huh. It's where my boyfriend was. And I think that one thing that we see clearly is that a simple if you build it, they will come philosophy is insufficient. Mm -hmm. I think this, the new learners are really hungry and excited for learning. They want to be doctors. I think stereotypes casting them as lazy Zoomers who just want to listen to lectures on 2X are missing the point. Yeah. And that when you do thoughtfully co-create craft instructional content, that's anchored in purpose. So yeah. who is this? Why is this helping the patient? Anchored in adult learning theory, you know, smaller high yield bites is better yeah. than eight hours of lecture in a lecture hall. Anchored in grappling with problems in a real world. So rather than black and white testing answers, thinking about how do you solve complex problems with tools around you that you can access that's the future. And we're making small progress towards that. Yeah. One thing that I would never have thought was going to happen was instead of a high stakes Q10 years board exam, having these longitudinal knowledge assessments where you can do your board's mix-up review questions on your computer or on your phone, and they encourage you to have up-to-date open our mm. medical encyclopedia yeah. on the other tab. It is a quote open book test yeah you answer your questions and you can do that instead of a high stakes exam every 10 years yeah that's it took a long time for that change to happen but it's here yeah. now and that's really exciting and i wanted to just pause there for yeah. for those who just to highlight a couple of points that yeah it's this point of it's this way that we treat patients at the bedside that often we have these tools like these online resources and we have to think about if we may not be familiar with a certain diagnosis, how to treat it, how to work it up, that we'll use these point of care resources. And so these assessment tools are now reflecting that reality. 
and also the I want to pause and or I want to go back to how current medical students learn. Often they watch recorded lectures instead of actually going to a lecture hall like I did for eight hours a day and listen to lecturers, some good, some not so good, literally talk for eight hours. And it was such an inefficient use of time. And and now a lot of students opt out of that before the even before the pandemic and go home and watch it recorded at 1.5, even two speeds. Yep. So they could get done a 60 minute lecture in 30 minutes. And I applaud them for that because there are not an, enough hours in a day to consume all that information. So there was, I think, some early backlash among educators saying they're lazy, but they're not lazy. They're being creative and thinking about how to maximize their time. So so now are we seeing more of of this kind of asynchronous learning become accepted now in medical education? I think it's much more accepted. I think also that concept of flipped classroom learning, which what used to be novel and innovative to say, watch this video before you come, then we'll talk about it and actually solve some problems together. That used to be dreaded or people would say, they're not going to do the, the pre-work. They're not going to watch the video in advance. But now you see whole cohorts of trainees coming up where they're used to that. They're used to having to be, to watch a high quality video that, you know, promotes the educational adult learning theory principles that will actually help you solve the problems in the real time. And people will feel it if they don't watch that video and then they'll watch it afterwards and still get that learning. And I think that today's learners are actually using multiple modalities to learn. So they're watching the videos on 2X. They're also using online flashcards. They're also using question banks. They're also going to clinic. And I think that, you know, bringing it back to the patient, I mostly teach residents and fellows in the clinical context, in addition to classroom teaching that I do sometimes for medical students. But when it comes to learning from the patients too, that's transformed as well. Mm. So now with the pandemic, we have done you know, three-way precepting where I will be on Zoom, my learner will be in their home or their office on Zoom, the patient will be on Zoom, and the daughter from New York will also Zoom in. And we can have that conversation. Yeah. And we can have that conversation and I can just click, oh, can I share my screen with you? And I'll pull up the CTs and actually walk through the CTs with them on Zoom and show them this black stuff is, you know, the emphysema or smoking-related lung damage. You know, this is normal lung. These white dots are normal. Don't worry about that. This is how your lung nodule has changed over time. And so using telehealth, that is a huge transformation that we've seen during the pandemic. There was telehealth before the pandemic. It was had limited uptake, limited educational value. But now with the pandemic, we've all had to upskill in telehealth and you can use it for good with both patient care and education. What has been some of the response from patients? I think that patients having to get up, get dressed, drive for three hours, find parking for an hour and pay for parking, spend their entire day with a day off of work or needing to get childcare, that whole experience for a 20 minute appointment is painful at best, at Mm. best. Yeah. Now, when I see patients on telehealth, they're at work and they can step out for a quick Zoom call while they're at work. 
they can step outside or sometimes, which I, it's not my favorite, but sometimes it happens. They'll call me from the road and I always double check for safety. <laughs> oh, are you, are you pulled over or are you parked somewhere? You know, I really want you to pay attention to the road safety first. But you know, the point is that it's so much more time efficient for the patient to hop on a Zoom call for 20 to 30 minutes than to take a whole day off of work or with childcare to drive to San Francisco, pay for parking, to come see a provider who's running late yeah. for 20 minutes. So it's a it's a much streamlined care experience. We early in the pandemic, we had a quick default of offering telehealth to most people and doing in-person visits for people who had barriers to telehealth. Of course, that's an important thing we have to be mindful of. We don't want to further marginalize patients who have tech literacy access issues. But now in year three of the pandemic, we basically offer a patient choice to say mm. on their way out to schedule the next appointment. I always ask, what would you prefer, virtual or in-person follow? And we just do, we accommodate whatever they choose. So if people yeah. say, oh yeah, I'd like to see you in person next time. We'll honor that. Or if they say, this virtual worked great. Sure, you didn't listen to my lungs, but we got a lot done. I still saw my CT scan. I could zoom in with my daughter from New York. I had the Russian translator come on Zoom and help. You know, all of that is possible with telemedicine. And it was unimaginable just a few years ago, even yeah. in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I want to wrap up our conversation with another area that you've been researching and a topic of interest to use women in medicine. Can you talk about that? Definitely. I think a lot of the design principles absolutely do apply, which is thinking about how might we create a more equitable environment for all. That's something that I'm passionate about, that I'm committed to, whether it's women physician trainees, and that's why I developed this women in leadership program at our institution, mm -hmm. or is it you know, creating an equitable learning environment for trainees who are underrepresented in medicine. Mm -hmm. How do we how do we improve our processes to promote and celebrate our trainees who are underrepresented in medicine to again promote a more equitable care experience for our patients who've been affected by systemic racism and sexism? And so equity work, work related to women in medicine and racial and ethnic equity is something that I'm very passionate about as well, because it all comes back to that fundamental design question of how might we make this place better? Yeah. How might we make the academy more tolerable to recruit and retain women and physicians underrepresented in medicine so that we can take better care of our diverse patient population? There's a thousand more questions I'd like to ask, but we're running out of time. And I really am grateful for you coming on the podcast, Lakshmi. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions, and I was honored to be here. Thanks so much. You can follow Lakshmi on Twitter. Her handle is at L-E-K-S-H-M-I-M-D. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi. The theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.